Welcome to Midweek, a place where we dive deep into Scripture. So grab your Bible, a pen, and a notebook, and get ready to study God's Word. Okay, um, John chapter 12 is where we're going to start, and um, we're going to cover verses 20 to verses 50, and where we left off was um, in the triumphal entry of Jesus, remember that? Comes in on Palm Sunday, right? Now, a couple of things I just want to state about that, just by way of review, get your mind wrapped around that again, and that is that Jesus, remember he sends a couple of disciples to go and find this little young colt. Remember that? And no one's ever sat on that colt before, that little colt foal of a donkey. And they go up there and they say, the Lord has needed it, and whoever owns it gives it right up, right? Now think of what that would mean for you and me today to do something like that. Let's pretend that you and I have a brand new Dodge Challenger um, what's the what's the big top end one with the crazy engine and what's it called? I can't remember. It's what is it? The Hell the Hellcat. Yeah. Let's say we had that one and they just dropped it off on. What's that commercial where they bring the car and they just you just order it online or whatever? What is it? Carvana, and say they drop, you haven't even driven it, you haven't even sat in it, you haven't even turned it on, you've done nothing, and then a couple guys show up and say, hey, Jesus has need of your Dodge Challenger Hellcat, and you just hand over the keys. Would you, could you do something like that? I mean, really? Because that's really what they're doing. They're coming for this, no one's ever sat on it, this mode of transportation Brand new, Jesus have need of it. Here, sure, take it. Here you go. And that's what they do. They just give that up. Isn't that wild? That's pretty crazy to me. Now, Jesus, um, one of the things about it we know is that when he is, um, last week we talked about, remember, the palm branches being waved. We talked about what that meant. But also, they're laying their coats in the road. Remember that? If you, if you know the story of, of Palm Sunday. Well, if you went back to um, 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, you would find when one of the kings is installed, they would take their coats and they were laying them on the floor. So as he walked up the steps, I think, to the throne, um, they, they were acknowledging him. There was a sign, laying the coats down was a sign of loyalty and honor. And so they're mimicking that whole thing that happened over in 2 Kings chapter 9 is what they're doing here. But one of the fascinating things, among other things, is that when Jesus, as he's riding in, and all the children, they're crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, son of David. Remember that? And it wasn't in what we read last week, but it's part of the whole story. And then the Pharisees, they get all, they get ripped out at the frame. They're so upset, and they just, uh, they say, stop this. Stop these children from saying that. And Jesus says, if these don't praise me, the... Rocks will cry out. Have you ever thought about that statement? The rocks will cry out? I'm thinking, how are the rocks going to cry out? And so, you know, you think about that, you kind of put scripture together, and I'll just speculate. Um, remember when Jesus uh, dies on the cross, the rocks split, the earth shook, remember? Yes. Well, that's noise there. It's almost like the rocks could be crying out there. Or if you go into, um, into Romans chapter, I think it's chapter 8, it says that all of creation groans to be redeemed. You guys know that text? All of creation. Not just you and I, humans in our bodies, but all of creation. All this world, everything groans to be restored 
to the way it should have been and the way it was. And so creation groans. So rocks do cry out. They do cry out for, to be restored. Now, another thing I want to point out is this. Um, Jesus rides in on Palm Sunday, correct? Correct? Yes. Okay, as the week moves by, we know that Thursday, he's having the Last Supper because he'll be crucified on Friday. So if you think about the, the timetable of days, Sunday to Thursday, that's four days right there. Now, you go back to Exodus 12 when they instituted the Passover, you find that they got that lamb, the Passover lamb, on April the 10th. Now, when they got the lamb as a family, by, by, it would say then on April 14th, that's when you kill the lamb. You have a sacrifice for Passover. That's four days. And so you see the lamb four days in the Old Testament, Passover lamb, and you see Jesus comes riding in and for four days. Now, why four days? Because when they'd get that lamb in the Old Testament Passover, they would, um, you had to grow, the family had to grow to love that little pet because it's, a, it's the idea also that when it's sacrificed, it hurts really bad because you love that pet. Same thing with Jesus Christ. You had to grow to love it and you, and you lose him. But the whole idea there is that the four days, the family is inspecting that lamb for any spot or blemish, correct? Yes. You read Matthew, when Jesus, the last week of his life, the Pharisees, and we've seen it in John, are they grilling him on questions? That's all they do. They're trying to prove that he's a false prophet. They're questioning him and questioning him, and they can never get him on anything. And so we see for four days that Jesus is being tested to see if there's any spot or wrinkle in him, the same way that for four days the family would have the lamb before Passover, inspecting that lamb. It's the same thing, those four days. Isn't that amazing right there? How all these things fit together. I just love stuff like that. Now, so we're going to pick up, and if you have your notes there, if you have notes, if you took one, we're going to look at, um, uh, in John chapter 12, uh, verse, um, sorry, verse 20, but the first thing in your notes is this. I want to say is, the number one, the prophecy of all nations will now be fulfilled. Now the prophecy that all nations will come to Jesus will be fulfilled. Let me read verses 20 to 23. And it says this. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Then these came to Philip, who is from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's right. Now, think about this, because the whole point of the prophecy of all nations will now be fulfilled. The Greeks come and they pick out Philip. Why Philip first? Why pick him out? Philip is kind of a Greek name, and his name literally means lover of horses. Philip turns around, and who does he go get? He gets Andrew. Andrew turns around, and who does he go get? He goes, gets Jesus, and tell him, tells Jesus, there's some Greeks here that they want to see you. Now, let me tell you something about Andrew right there that I think is very unique to him. And every disciple has their uniqueness, and there's things about you in your life. When you got saved, when I got saved, God didn't eliminate those personality things about us. He just used them. So you take Andrew. Andrew, when we find him in John 1, he's bringing Peter, his brother, to Jesus, right? 
in John 6, Andrew is bringing the lad with the lunch to Jesus, and Jesus is going to multiply the bread, right? Okay, and then now we find Andrew bringing Greeks to Jesus. You always find Andrew bringing people to Jesus Christ. So you don't lose your personality type. You take Paul uh, before he was a Christian. Was Paul zealous? Say yeah. He was super zealous. He was so zealous he's killing Christians. And then he becomes a Christian. And does he lose his zeal? No. His zeal is just redirected. And now instead of killing Christians, he's making Christians with his zeal for God. So God will use your personality, style, type, etc., to continue the ministry. Now, what I want to point out in point one, though, is now that the Greeks are coming, are Greeks Jews or Gentiles? They're Gentiles. So now all the nations are coming to Christ. Didn't Jesus say in John 10 that I have another flock? Remember that statement? He has another flock. Those are the Gentiles. And so now they are now coming to Jesus Christ, and they're coming all together. So Jesus, I think I have it in your notes, the full verse right there, in Mark eleven seventeen, Jesus made the statement there when he overturned the tables of the money changers. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for what? For all the nations, for every one of them. And now we see the Greeks, the Gentiles coming, the, all the nations are coming. And so Jesus sees this and realizes now is the time, or he says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now it's happening because they're all coming now and it's going down now. Now, John 12, 24 to 26, let's read on. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Verse 25, he who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will, all, will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, I want you to look at those three verses because it thoroughly covers almost the whole gamut of Christianity if you think about it. In verse 24, the grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, right? There's a death, right? Right? Okay, good. And then it bears much fruit, correct? So you think about that, that's the crucifixion death of Jesus. His death will bear much fruit, will it not? And then verse 25. Verse 25 is about, you got to make a decision to lose your life for Jesus Christ and let him live through you. That's personal, is it not? So now you see Christianity is personal. We're in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then in verse 26, he says, look, if anyone serves me, they're going to follow me. Where I'm at, my servant will also be because he's a servant. So now we find there, we become a disciple. So first we see the substitutionary death of Jesus. Then we see Christianity's personal. And then we see the discipleship of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Can you guys see that? Does that make sense? Now let me talk to you about discipleship because discipleship is very specific. This is not like, well, whatever goes, goes. Now, in, in Genesis, do you remember uh, in the first week of creation and even when he says to bring the animals on the ark, he says um, that the animals were made after their own kind. That's right. That's a specific word he uses. They're made after their own kind. Now, scholars uh, uh, have, have, have looked at the Hebrew on it and everything. It's the idea of the family, the family of animal, not species. 
So when somebody says, how could Noah get all the species of animals on the ark? No, 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 incorrect. He only had to get the kind, two of the kind, of the family. So like two dogs, that's all he needed. And by the way, if you think about after that time and the DNA and those two dogs and all the different breeding of dogs, we have no idea what the first two dogs look like, do we? That'd be interesting to find out what those guys look like, those first two. Because all we see is all this been in bread and stuff like that, things like that, time has passed. So we know that in the kind, everything produces after its own kind. So the DNA in a lemon, well, that seed will produce a lemon. So too, when you're a follower of Christ, if we are true followers of Christ, really following Christ, we carry the seed of Jesus Christ in us. Do we not? And therefore, because the seed of Christ is in us, do we not produce after that kind? After the Jesus kind? Exactly so. We should be emulating, taking on the pattern and the, the lifestyle of Jesus Christ. And in this case, in verse 26, it's specific to serving. And since Jesus was a servant and his seed is in us, shouldn't that bear the fruit of being a servant also? I think, yeah, I think we should be serving because I think that's what it's saying there. Verse, uh, and then point two now. The cross always comes before the crown. Always comes before the crown. Verse 24 again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the, into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears what? Many How much? Many, Many seeds, much fruit. Now think about that. So it must die so that it bears a lot of fruit, correct? Yes. Now think of what he's saying because the cross always comes before the crown. Let's apply it to our lives. If we die to ourselves and live for God, doesn't it make sense that he's saying here we bear much fruit, that all of our limitations are gone? Yes or no? Yes. The limitations of our life now cease because we choose to die and we lose the encasement like on that seed and we're planted and we die to ourselves and we live to God, then God can take our, li our lives and cause so much growth and so much fruit, correct? Yes. But it takes a death to ourself first, does it not? And once we die to ourselves, now we remove, we remove the barrier from our life so that the seed of Christ can now grow and we can flourish and bear so much fruit in our life. Amen? That's just called potential, guys. There's so much Holy Spirit potential in us if we just die to ourselves and let that thing go, man. Now, verse 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Look what he's saying. Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? But then he says, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. I like this. Because when it came to dying, because that's what he's talking about, did Jesus sit and go, well, should I die or not? Did he say that? No. What did he do? He said what? He said, I came for this reason. This is what I came for. There's no hesitation. There's no question to this whole thing. I'm going to fulfill my purpose. Verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, three times the Father speaks audibly to Jesus. First time at the baptism. Second time on the 
Mount of Transfiguration. Third time, right here. Three times God the Father speaks audibly to Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> notice what Jesus led off verse 28 with. He said, now because it's time, Father, glorify your what? Louder, your what? I'm to glorify the name of God. Am I not? Am I not? Okay, let me, let me put it to you this way. What's a practical way to die to myself? Glorify God's name. I can't live for the glory of my own name and the glory of God's name at the same time. I've got to live for one or I've got to live for the other. Correct? And so I'm to live for the glory of His name. Jesus said, Father, glorify your name. He didn't say glorify my name. He said glorify your name. Now, I want to show you something that I think is very important when it comes to glorifying God's name, dying to ourselves. In your notes, keeping your marker here, turn to Genesis chapter 11. It's the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Now, <clears throat> when you're there, say I'm there. Now, the Tower of Babel, <clears throat> and if you want to go back and read on the Tower of Babel, I would back up even to uh, chapter 10, like verse 8 through 11. gives you even more uh, understanding here. But we're going to read 11, 1 through 4. Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. So, obviously, God's creation all spoke the same language, right? Yeah. And it came about as they journeyed east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, Shinar is the area we know as Babylon in the Bible. So that's that area, okay? Verse 3, they said to one another, now they're going to start talking. These humans are talking to each other. These early, early, early people have been you know, from a long time ago. They said, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stones and they used tar for mortar. Because remember, there's a lot of petroleum products in the Middle East, right? So they got that kind of stuff there. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. And let us make for ourselves a louder a, a name. There it is. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now, notice what they don't want to do. What don't they want to be? Scattered. Scattered. What did God command them to do back in chapter 9? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the entire earth. They don't want to do that. And so they're building a tower. Now, I'll give you a free one right here. If you ever look at um, different countries, why do different countries all seem to have these pyramid-type shapes from antiquities, these buildings that they built. How come they all have the same type buildings? I'll tell you why. Because they brought the architecture style from here at the Tower of Babel, which was probably a step-type pyramid-looking structure. They take that architecture with them as they scattered throughout the whole earth when the languages are are, are, are confused. And by confusion, meaning that this group here, you're speaking a new language. This group here, you're speaking a language. You over there speaking a language. So it's the best way to scatter them because if we speak a certain language, 
and you speak a language, and there's no interpreters there. It's not the United Nations, guys. The, the number one thing you're going to do probably more likely is you're going to scatter from each other because you can't understand each other whatsoever. And so as they scatter around the entire earth, and by the way, that's why we look differently, but we're not different. But when you get the gene pool isolated of a group of people for a couple thousand years, you begin to take on certain characteristics, right? And that's why different looks to different people, but we're 99.8% exactly the same. There's no difference to us whatsoever. We're all human, and that's what it is, okay? Now, I don't even know where I'm at because I just went off scale on this. Okay, okay, we're talking about uh, 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 a name, 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 that's right. Okay, they want to make themselves a name, correct? Is that self-glorification? Say yeah. Okay, but we got a problem with that, don't we? Because when we come to the New Testament, turn over to Matthew chapter 6, first, uh, first, letter, uh, first letter gospel in the New Testament. We go to the Lord's Prayer, which I think most of us know it. Um, maybe some of us don't. But the Lord's Prayer, in Matthew 6, Jesus taught them how to pray, right? And look what he says in verse 9. He says, uh, pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your, your name. Oh, so we're supposed to glorify in the name of God as holy. Oh, okay. So we're to live for the glory of God. But in Tower of Babel, they were lived to, glory, to make a name for themselves, to glorify themselves. You see that right there? So a great way to glorify God is to die to our self. That's the simplest way to glorify God. Start dying to ourself and we will glorify God. Or you could reverse it. Glorify God and we'll die to ourself. It's just that simple. Because you can't glorify them both. It's one or the other. Now, back to John chapter 12. Verse 29, it says, So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying, and this, is, this cracks me up all the time, they hear the voice of God. And some were saying, that it, oh, it's thunder. Others were saying, oh, an angel has spoken to him. And every time you hear the voice of God, don't you hear people saying that in Scripture? It's always that way. Some believe, some don't believe. Verse 30. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Verse 32. And I... If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Okay. Now, there's three consequences that we find here uh, of Jesus' death. And they're in your notes. The first one is the world will be judged. The world will be judged. And we find that in verse 31. The second consequence in your notes is the God of this world. Who is who? Who's the God of this world? It's Satan, yeah. The God of this world will receive his sentence. The God of this world will be sentenced. He says the, the, he says, the ruler of this world will be cast out. And then the third thing in your notes is people will be drawn to Jesus. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. And so you see the three, the world will be judged, the God of this world will receive his sentence, and the people and people will be drawn to Jesus. Now, Lift it up, I think it has to have two meanings. 
It has to be crucifixion. He's lifted up. But it can't end there because if all you have is a dead Messiah, is anyone going to believe or follow? No. So it's got to be lifted up crucifixion and lifted up in resurrection. Because it's the resurrection that's the receipt and the proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Amen to that one right there? Now, look at, and, and, and by the way, I think we're going to, we'll, we'll come back to um, verse 31 at the very end. I want to come back and I want to I show you more on Satan being cast out, more on the stages of this. But that's at the very end. We'll come back to that. Verse 33. But he was saying to, to indicate this kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have a light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Okay, now, their question, and I don't know if they're trying to get him or not, or they're just asking a very logical question. Because in the Old Testament, it always would tell them that Messiah, that in their mind, first off, the Messiah is going to be a warrior king that overthrows the oppressors like Judas Maccabeus, and they will set up Israel as the kingdom forever, right? But in that, the throne of David, somebody will sit on the throne of David for how long? Forever. Forever. But now, Jesus has been telling them that he's going to leave, that he's going to go away. And so in their mind, that doesn't compute. But somebody's going to sit, this Messiah will sit on the throne of David forever, but you're going to go away, which is it? What's going on here? Now Jesus doesn't even answer their question. He doesn't even give a response to it. Instead, Jesus says, it's almost like he's saying, look guys, that's irrelevant now. And he's saying this to them. He's saying, a little warning, I'm only going to be here a little bit longer. While I'm here, you walk in the light that I'm giving you and you stay in that light and you do your best to listen to that light and you do your best to live that light because these questions now, they're not relevant anymore. What's relevant now is the light that I've given you. Now, point three. Truth becomes the source of hardening or softening the heart. Truth becomes a source of hardening or softening the heart. Now, verse 37. But though, he, but though he had performed so many signs before them, and he did a lot of signs, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Here's, here's Isaiah's words. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Okay. So here, here's the danger. The point is, truth becomes a source, the source of hardening or softening the heart. <clears throat> the danger is this. 
Did they see a lot of signs? Did they soften their heart and believe? No. That's dangerous, huh? That you can see all these signs and, it's, and prophetically it's stated, it's no, still don't believe. The second thing I want to say is this. Look at verse 38. Isaiah even said, he goes, Lord, who has believed our report? A report is given verbally, is it not? That's Jesus' preaching ministry. And then he says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm denotes action, activity, and those are the signs and wonders and the miracles Jesus did, correct? So they hear the preaching report, they see the arm of the Lord in action with all the miracles, and do they believe? No. They still do not believe. They're still not giving their heart over. So the truth of God's word is either going to harden the heart or soften the heart, and that's true of everybody. See, the same sun that softens the butter hardens the clay, correct? It's the same sun. Does those both things. Now, let's put it to you this way. So, so Moses, he, he comes back to Egypt, and he's given specific instructions by Yahweh, by the I Am. And he says, you go tell Pharaoh, specifically, thus saith the Lord, let my people go. Now think of the term, terminology that he used to talk to old Pharaoh. He says, God says, let my people go. Who does he tell Pharaoh the people belong to? They belong to God. Who does Pharaoh think the people belong to? He thinks they belong to him. No, they're mine. But Moses, no, no, they're God's. God says they're his and he wants you to let him go right now. Now, we know that as Moses and Pharaoh are going back and forth and the plagues, all 10 plagues are happening. And by the way, every one of those plagues was an attack against a God that the Egyptians worshiped to show how, um, how powerless their gods really were. They were just false idols. But you see over and over again, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, correct? Now, people go, oh, God's so mean, he hardened his heart. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that at all. It means simply that because he refused to obey God, his heart is getting harder. That's all it means. And that's all it means. You see, we have the option of when we see God's word, hear God's word, I can harden my heart or I can soften my heart. Correct? Yes. Correct? Yes. And here's the interesting thing about, and I don't know if I've ever shared this with you before, but you look in Egyptology, uh, and I like stuff like that, um, but you look in there and you find that um, when, a, when a pharaoh passed away, that they would, and they did this when they would um, embalm them, but they would take out all the major organs in the body, but they would leave the heart. Now, there's a reason they leave the heart. As they put the pharaoh in the tomb, the pharaoh's going to pass to the world of the dead. His goal is to get to paradise. That's like being heaven for him. But there's one thing that has to happen for him to get there. He's got to come to this place where this heart of his must be weighed opposite of a feather. And if the feather, if the heart weighs more than the feather, he doesn't go into paradise. His heart has to be pure enough, so that means it's light enough that it doesn't outweigh a feather to get into his paradise. Is that crazy or what? So when Moses tells Pharaoh, uh, specifically, let me read it real quick. He tells him in, in Exodus 8.32, it says, or it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The word harden there means weighty. 
made it heavy. It's almost like Moses in his dialogue, because where was Moses educated at? In Egypt. He knows all the Egyptology. He knows their religions. He grew up in it. He's telling Pharaoh, don't let your heart get heavy. Don't let your heart get heavy because you know what's going to happen. He's using his own Egyptology against him to try to get him to try to let go of the people. Do the right thing, Pharaoh. Is that wild or what, man? But old, but old Pharaoh, he decides to harden his heart and he pays the price for that one right there. Now, verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he, and he spoke with him. Now, Isaiah said these things, the things we just read, Jesus is saying this because, um, or John is writing this, because Isaiah saw the glory of God. Remember that? If you don't know where that is, just jot this down. Isaiah chapter 6, like verse 1 through 13, 1 through 12, something like that. And it's one of these great interactions where Isaiah finds himself in spirit, basically, and he's, and he's in this worship service, and he sees the Lord. He sees the pre-incarnate Christ, and he sees the train of his robe in the temple, and he sees the angels singing, holy, 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 and there's this massive worship service, and Isaiah's in it. He's in the middle of it, and while he's in it, he realizes one thing. I'm a what? I'm a sinful man. You see, when you and I worship God, don't you ever sit there sometimes and feel like, who am I to worship God? Who am I in all my sins to come in and worship God? Because when you're in the presence of God, that's why worship is so important, you realize, I don't measure up and I need God. And Isaiah in that worship service, and that's why we need worship, because we need these things, because Isaiah in that moment, he realizes, I'm a sinful man. Specifically, he adds to that, I'm a man of unclean lips. Who knows what was coming out of his mouth? Now, I've heard that for the first five chapters of Isaiah, very condemning, but from chapter 6 on, changes his tune because he has an encounter with God in worship. And so these angels fly with those tongs and they pick up the burning embers off the altar and they burn his lips, but his lips aren't burned. They're not, nothing like that. But it heals him and it changes him. And then in that moment of worship, he hears God the Father and Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ, and the Holy Spirit, they're dialoguing and they're talking. And they make a statement, who will go for us? Isaiah hears that. And Isaiah says, send me. I'll go. I'll go. All because of a worship service. He saw the, he saw the, 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 the God. He saw these things. Now, obviously the Father's invisible, but he saw the glory. He saw these things. And here's what he's pointing out right here, that he, he saw these things. He saw the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 42. I'm going to read 42 to 50, then I'm going to come back and close up. Okay. Man, tonight went by fast, didn't it? Gosh, that's not right. Uh, 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, oh my gosh, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Now, you know, you kind of feel bad for some of these people. They're so terrified that these Pharisees have so much power and control that they'll boot them out of the synagogues. And so they're going to go with, they're going to toe the line. They're going to go with the flow instead of doing the right thing. So verse 43 for, and here's the reasoning why. For they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That's dangerous, dangerous right there. Verse uh, 44. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in, 
does not believe in me, but in him, meaning the Father, who sent me, verse 45. He who sees me sees the one who, who sent me. Now, what Jesus is saying there is that Jesus is one with the, with the Father. That's what he's telling you right there. Now, verse 46. <clears throat> I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. What is Jesus saying right there? Jesus is the light. He's the literal embodiment of the truth. Amen? That's exactly what he is. He's the literal embodiment of the truth. Verse 47. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him, the word. I spoke is what will judge him in the last day. So now he says that um, those who refuse to believe condemn themselves. But look at verse 48. Just look at it and as I say these things to you. There's going to be a last day, correct? See it in there? Yeah. The last day will be the judgment day. You see that? Yeah. And Jesus' word will be what judges sinners on that last day, on judgment day. That's a loaded verse right there, man. Now, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. So Jesus does everything that the Father has told him and everything the Father has told him. He does it, which shows you that they are one in essence. They are one in character. Now, let's go back to this idea. This is what I want to close on tonight. In, back in verse um, 31. Look back at verse 31. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's the ruler of the world again? Satan, because when Adam and Eve sinned, they handed over every, this whole world to Satan. That's what they did. It lies in his power. We find that over in 1 John. Now, there's four stages of Satan's demise. There's four. And we'll go through them, and we'll go through the scripture to point it out. There's four stages of his demise. The first, stage one, crushed at the cross. He's crushed at the cross. We're not coming back to John. So look at Genesis chapter 3. Way back. Now let's look at verse, chapter 3, verse 15. It says... And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This, in case you don't know, but now you will know, is the first mention of the Messiah to come to save mankind. As soon as sin happened, as soon as man blew it, God puts in, in place, here it comes, the Messiah will come. 
The seed of the woman is Jesus. And Jesus will bruise you, the serpent Satan, on the head. Crushing blow. And you, the serpent, shall bruise him. You, Satan, shall bruise him on the heel. Crucified victims, their heel very bruised, very swelled up too. Okay, that's stage one. Satan will be, was crushed at the cross. Stage two, in your notes, cast out of heaven. The second stage of Satan is he's cast out of heaven. Now, you may not know this one, but now you will know. Turn to Revelation uh, chapter 12, and you're going to stay in Revelation now. Revelation 12. When you're there, say, I'm there. It's the very last, last book of the entire Bible. Way to your right. He's cast out of heaven. Now look at verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Now, have you ever noticed that Satan never lets up accusing you in your head? That whenever you mess up, boy, does he just come slamming in day and night, guys. But notice... It says, the accuser has been thrown down. You go back to verse 9. You find him thrown down. Now, let me tell you the facts and what this actually means if I read the whole context and everything. Do you know right now, Satan still has access to the throne of God? You never think that, do you? He no longer has his position. He lost that when he sinned. But he does have access. Remember Job? The sons of God, that fallen in, they come to the throne of God. Remember those things. He still has access, but there will come a moment when he no longer has access to the throne. Now, when that time comes, now look at, there's a bonus right here, verse 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell on the earth. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. He will know when that short time is. Because he will no longer have access. And he will unleash like never before at that moment. But that's stage two of the demise. Stage three of Satan's demise, in your notes, is he's cast into the bottomless pit. You could write down abyss instead of bottomless pit. It's easier. Abyss, A-B-Y-S-S. He's cast into the bottomless pit. Now look at Revelation chapter 20. Check this out. Verse 3, but let me back up to verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's called the millennial reign coming, guys. And he threw him into, one, into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And every one of your minds says, why does he need to be released for a short time? And I don't have 45 minutes to explain that one, okay? So just hold off on those types of things. But now, 
When Jesus comes back in the second coming and we come back with him and we're riding on white horses and this is great. Mine will probably look like a Dodge Challenger or something. But, we're riding, and so, but Satan will be bound, thrown into the abyss for a thousand years and the earth will look just like it is right now in the second coming. It won't be any different yet. We're going to come back and Jesus will be physically on earth it will be a reign of righteousness. Satan will not be loose. So it will be pure righteousness for 1,000 years. Is that cool or what? Because he's bound up in that abyss right there. And then the final stage of Satan, and that is he's cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. He's done away. He's cast away in there. Now, you find that chapter 20 and verse 10, it says, And the devil who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast, meaning the Antichrist, and the false prophet, now remember, there's a holy trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there's an unholy trinity, Satan, Antichrist, false prophet. False prophet would be your, your kind of opposite, though they're not opposite, of the Holy Spirit. It says, and false prophet also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Why are they tormented day and night? How do they torment us? Day and night. And they will be tormented day and night. And that'll be it for him. And he's done forever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for your word. Because it just pops, man. It is so true. Thank you, Lord, that we win in the end. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that that word of God doesn't harden our heart, but our heart stays soft. Thank you, Lord. Father, we're so grateful for all you've done for us. We just want to glorify your name and die to ourselves. We want to make your name great, God. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, and we all said, Amen. amen and amen. If you need prayer or dedicated your life to Christ, please reach out to us on our social media, on Facebook and Instagram at NBCCNorco, or email us at hello at NBCC.com. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe to this podcast.